Today we're going to get right into 1 Thessalonians. We're in a series called Contagious. And we're talking about this incredible church that, uh, that Paul started in uh, the capital city of Thessalonica. He was only there for about a month. He preached and God moved and, and he moved on from there. He was run out of town. And as he wrote back to this church, he was so excited to hear about what God was doing in the midst of the church. And he writes this letter where he just, he just gushes over the church and what God is doing there. Last week as we moved in uh, to chapter 3, Paul uh, began, or chapter 4 rather, he began with a phrase, he said, as for other matters, and now he's moved on past uh, praising them and celebrating what God has done and what, is, what God is doing. And, and now he says, there's a few things that I do need to talk to you about because I love you. And so last week we dived into the issue of immorality in the church. And, and Paul talked to them about what it means to honor God and to live countercultural, to not be swayed by the cultural norms, but to be... Uh, but to be grounded on the authoritative Word of God, to let the precepts and the principles of God's Word be the guardrails so that you can run in the path of freedom. And so we looked at that last week. Today, I want us to jump in to chapter 4 a little more, and we will lean into chapter 5, hopefully a little bit. But as we jump into this uh, letter, have you enjoyed this letter? Hasn't it been great, man? Don't you just love God's Word? I've loved so much uh, walking through this letter for the last five weeks. I want to just throw a question out for you to consider. What do you hope in? What do you, what do you hope for? Now, a, a lot of us, we're hoping for a great school year. Some of you are hoping your kids graduate. Uh, you know, we hope for a lot of things. You might hope for a raise or a promotion at your job. You might be hoping to recover from some illness that you've been dealing with. A lot of people hope for different things. But to have hope can have two different meanings. Hope can mean I wish. I hope something happens. I wish for something. But hope can also mean that you put your full confidence in something. And this letter to the Thessalonians is a letter about hope. It's Paul saying that we have some things that we can put our full confidence in. We have this hope in the church. Titus calls it the blessed assurance. Now you could say blessed assurance, but it just sounds more spiritual if you say it in King James. The blessed assurance. We have this hope. And you know what he says the hope is? The hope is that Jesus is coming again. That's the hope. It's the blessed hope. And it's not a wish. It's a confidence that we have that Jesus is going to come again. And one of the major themes of this letter to the Thessalonians is that promise. It's the hope that the church needs. In fact, Paul said, and we studied this in week one of the series... Paul said in the first chapter, in the third verse, he said, I remember you in prayer. And whenever I remember you in prayer, one of the things that comes to mind, Paul said, was the endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This church went through some stuff. Anybody ever gone through some stuff? 
If you've ever been through some stuff to where you're not any longer worshiping God based on the way you feel, or you're not worshiping God, you know, because things have really gone in your favor, you're worshiping God in spite of that. You ever been there? You're worshiping God in spite of what you feel, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of where you are. Paul said, I saw your endurance in the middle of some tough stuff. And and your hope in the Lord Jesus inspired me to remember you often. And I pray for you because he saw the hope of this church. But specifically, and this is what I really want to get into today. Specifically, the hope that Paul talked about that this church believed in was that Jesus is coming back. Not that he's coming through. I said he's coming back. Now, I don't want to assume too much biblical literacy here, so let me just start by taking you to another scripture. Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians. But I want you to know, why would would they think that? I mean, why would the, the church in Thessalonica think Jesus was coming back? They had believed the gospel message that that Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he did miracles in God's name, he preached a gospel they had never heard before, he was crucified on a cross, he died three days later, he rose again, and 40 days after that, he ascended in bodily form back up to the Father, and he's there praying for you. How many of you believed that message? Amen. They believed that same message, but it didn't stop there. They believed the rest of the message. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1. This is right before Jesus goes back to heaven. He's talking with his disciples. And the Bible says this. It's been 40 days. Verse 9. Acts 1. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly, the Bible says, two men dressed in white stood beside them. All of a sudden, the word says in verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now catch these next words. This same Jesus who has been taken from you to heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The last thing that happened while Jesus was on the earth is heaven itself sent two messengers to communicate a message. The same Jesus that you just saw go away is coming back in the same way. That means he's coming back in a body. The same Jesus. That means he's coming back in the sky. The same way. He's coming back. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this doctrine, it's called the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord. Maybe this is something you go, wow, I haven't really heard about this too much. I want you to know today, this is really important, that this is not a, um, this is not a sidebar doctrine. Now, there's some things, you know, that different churches disagree on and, and we can just learn to live together. I mean, hey, we all serve the same Lord. We all love Jesus. I want to tell you, this is not one of those sidebar doctrines. This is not a peripheral issue. In fact, the second coming of the Lord is one of our four core doctrines. We believe this with all of our hearts. In fact, I talked earlier this week with a man, uh, we were talking about the, the church. He doesn't attend our church, but he's a Christian. 
And I told him in the course of conversation, I'm preaching this Sunday on the second coming of the Lord. You know what his first statement was? His reaction was, he said, wow, boy, we don't hear too many messages about that anymore. Have you found that to be true? People go, wow, we don't hear that too often. You know, a generation ago, you might have heard a message about the coming of the Lord every other Sunday. Right? I mean, we saw Israel return to its state and to its land in 1948. You know, of all the ites that you read about in the Old Testament, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, all the ites, they've all just been mixed into other groups. They've all kind of just dispersed into other... But there's one ite, the Israelites, that God restored back to their land, back to their language. And, and it was a fulfillment of a promise. And when people saw that in the late 40s, they said, oh my, he's coming back. He's coming back. And the word of God says that this generation shall not pass until these things happen. And so people thought, well, generations 40 years, Jesus is coming back before 1988. And people got excited. You heard messages about the coming of the Lord all the time. But it is true. It seems like don't hear as many people preaching about the coming of the Lord. But I want to tell you today, the New Testament refers to the second coming of the Lord more than 300 times. I didn't say in the Bible. I said in the New Testament. That's once every 26 verses. This is not a peripheral context. We're talking about a major doctrinal reality that Jesus is coming. And, and maybe, maybe they preached it too much in the old days. Because the reality is there wasn't a lot of conversation about discipleship. There wasn't a lot of conversation about, uh, about building relationship and and. You know, having a positive influence in the community it was all about, man, we're going to heaven. You guys, this, this world is going to burn with a fervent heat, but we're on our way out. But I think maybe the pendulum has swung too far the other way. That we can be so focused on what God's doing here and on what God's doing now and on what God's going to do in our children and in our children's children that we can forget there's a reality that's communicated in the Word of God. And the reality is this, Jesus is coming back and his return is imminent what that means is it could happen at any moment it could happen at any any moment it was belinda carlisle that gave us the the melody in 1987 Ooh, heaven is a place on earth i apologize now for getting that st- song stuck in your head <laughs> Sorry, Darlene. If you, like my wife, like the 80s, you're singing that song in your head right now. It might be a good melody, but let me tell you, that is a terrible theology. Heaven is not a place on earth unless you're never going to make it to heaven. For those that will never see the glory of heaven, this is as good as it gets. This sin-cursed world is as good as it will ever get. But for those who have put their faith in God through His Son, Jesus Christ, heaven is not a place on earth. For you, the, the earth, all it has to offer is the closest thing to hell you're ever going to have to experience. Amen? That's why we call it the blessed hope because on your worst day, you can say, I'm getting out of here. It's going to get better. I can promise you that. It's going to get better. Heaven is not a place on earth. 
It's a kingdom. It's a city that Jesus is building and preparing a place for us in. And I want you to know about this church. And I know we haven't even read the text yet, but it's going to get good quick. The Thessalonians believed it. They didn't just buy the message of salvation. They didn't just buy the message of grace. They didn't just buy the hope that Jesus could forgive their sins. They believed while they were being persecuted, while they were being uh, looked down on uh, by the choices they were making to follow this Savior from the right and from the left, they held on to the hope that this same Jesus will come back in like manner. They believed it with all of their heart. But there was a problem. And it was a big problem. And when Paul heard about it, he had to write to him. And part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter of 1 Thessalonians, and specifically the reason that he wrote chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, is because of a problem. And the problem was this. Somewhere after Paul had left and the church got started, Paul got pushed out of Thessalonica. He went over to Berea. He got pushed out of Berea. He went down to Athens. He left Athens. He went over to Corinth. And then he sent Timothy back to check on him. And somewhere between the time Paul left and the time Timothy got back, somebody in the church died. And it raised a huge theological question. The question was, wait a minute. Jesus is coming back. We're excited. We can't wait to see Him. He's going to split the eastern skies. We're ready for Him to come, but wait a minute. One of our church members died. And the question was, what happens to those that die before Jesus comes back? And they didn't really know. And, and there was speculation, and there was question, and there was concern. And so when Paul hears back from Timothy about the questions in the church, he begins to write these words, and we're going to read them together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. Paul said, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. I'm going to explain it to you. I want, I want you to know that God has a plan, not just for those that are watching and waiting, but he has a plan for those that die in the faith. And he says this, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you grieve like those who have no hope. Now notice what he didn't say in this verse. He did not say so that you don't grieve. He did not say that, listen, if you have hope, you're not going to grieve. No, you'll grieve. When loved ones die, we'll grieve. In fact, I, I was finishing writing this sermon, and I was grieving. Because we just found out on Friday that one of our members, Nancy Miller, her husband, he passed away on Friday, about 4.30. I was sitting in my office, I was, I was writing this sermon... And within just about 30 minutes or so, I was there on the seventh floor of the hospital. I was standing with believers, people that believe in the blessed hope. And you know what? We were grieving. Paul is not saying you're not going to grieve. What Paul is saying, it's not hopeless. You're not grieving with a hopelessness that says, well, it, it, it's, it's over. It's gone. That's the end of the story. Close the book. There's nothing more to be done. No, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. Why? Verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
Can I just tell you today, our hope is tethered to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because he, because he rose again. Can I tell you something about Jesus? He rose from the dead. He wasn't just resuscitated. There's a lot of people in the Bible that were actually raised back to life. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus raised the, the widow's son at the uh, gateway of the city of Nain. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the grave for four days. But guess what? All those people died again. Jesus revived their life. But when Jesus came out of the grave, it wasn't a resuscitation. When he came out of the grave, he came out not revived. He came out glorified. That means that, that Jesus had a glorified body. That though it was a body, the Bible says that Mary clung to him in the garden. You could hold on to him. You could touch him. The disciples put their hand in the place where the spear had thrust through his side. They saw the nail scars. Jesus ate fish with his disciples. But it was also a body that could walk through a locked door and show up in an upper room. It was a body that never gets weary. It was a body that is still healthy today. It was a glorified body that lifted up off the Mount of Olives and ascended back to the right hand of God. And that same Jesus in that same body is coming back again. And so the promise that we have of the blessed hope is hinging on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that Jesus rose as the first fruits. Now, if you've ever grown anything, you understand what the first fruits are. The first fruits are the first fruits to come up out of the ground. Do you ever have something growing in your garden you couldn't really remember what it was? Like, I don't really know what that's going to be. But you water it and you wait. And then all of a sudden it pops up. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We got tomatoes over here. The first fruits are evidence of what else is coming up out of the ground. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so we have this hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And verse 14 says, So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. That's the hope. He said, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to think that somehow because they died and Jesus hasn't come, they missed it. No, I want you to know, here's the blessed hope that those that have died, when Jesus does come back in His glorified body, they're coming with Him. Look at verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Of course, he's speaking about death when he says fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. This event that Paul's talking about is called the rapture. It's the rapture of the church. And in these verses... Paul describes for us not only what will happen, but he describes it in the order that it's going to happen. So I just want to take a couple of moments and, and just unpack the order of what's going on. 
Now the word rapture is not a Bible word. It's a word that we use to describe this catching away. It's a word that we use to describe what Paul said was going to happen. But don't get nervous. Don't think we're adding something to the Bible. Because it's not a, the word Bible is not in the Bible either, by the way. Neither is the word Trinity. But we understand these things to explain a biblical reality. Paul said there's going to be a catching away of those who are alive in Christ and remain. And the awesome thing about this, and I love this, Paul expected to be alive. No, notice the way that he said it in verse 15. He, in the last part, he said, And we who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have died. He expected, like, we're going to be alive. I know some folks died, but not me. I, I'm, expecting, I'm expecting Jesus to come before I die. Now listen, if, if, if a person dies, we understand the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. What that tells us is the moment a person breathes their last breath in this body, they are in the presence of God. In verse 17, we just read it, it says, it says the dead in Christ will rise first, after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together in the clouds with them. So those that have died will be coming in the clouds with Him. If a person dies, immediately they go into the presence of the Lord. So there, there's no fear about what happens after death as far as whether Jesus comes now or a or hundred years from now. But the reality is that when the resurrection happens, those bodies that we used to live in before death are going to be brought back. And we're going to get into that. We're going to see what happens as Paul explains the events. Here they are. There's four, four stages. Number one, Christ will descend from heaven with a shout. Verse 16, he's going to give a shout and Christ will descend. The second thing is this, Christians who have died will rise out of their graves. Now we know their spirit's already with Christ. That's why it, it sounds like a contradiction because he says the dead that are in Christ are going to rise first. But when we rise, he's coming on the clouds. God said they'll come in the clouds with you. So wait, are they coming out of the ground or are they coming out of the clouds? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the moment, the moment a person dies, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of Christ. But there's going to come a great getting up morning where the shout of God is going to come from heaven. Jesus is going to descend the same way He ascended. And in that moment, the Bible says the dead, the bodies that are in the graves are going to come up out of the ground. Graves are going to be opened up and they're going to rise up towards heaven. Now, there's some people that get concerned when you say that because they go, wait a minute, wait a minute. My, my grandfather was a Christian and, and he was cremated. So how's that going to work? Or, or I know about somebody that was, you know, they died in a house fire. Or, or somebody that was lost at sea. But listen, I want to remind you what the Bible says about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 3. It says, through him all things were made. And by him all things were made. And nothing that has been made was not made by him. So you don't have to worry about how he's going to make it happen. Colossians 1.17 says he holds all things together. We'll let him worry about the details of how it's going to happen. But the reality is the Bible communicates that in that moment 
those bodies are going to be coming out of the grave. It means there's, there's, there's no absence of anyone that loved Christ and died in Christ from heaven, regardless of how they died or regardless of how they were buried. They say, well, why? I mean, if, if you die and you go to heaven, maybe you've got relatives that have been there for 20, 30 or more years. Why would they need that body? They've been in heaven for 30 years. They're doing good without it. And I can't give you all the answers on that, but here's, here's my theory. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, He gave them a body. And He created them to have fellowship with them forever. That was the plan before sin entered the human story and hijacked the narrative. God's plan was to have fellowship with you in your body forever. And so God, who makes all things new and restores all things, when it's all said and done and the final death blow has been given to death itself, these bodies that sin has wrecked are going to come up out of the grave glorified and we're going to live together. We're going to walk in that garden the way Jesus intended it in Genesis 3. And so these bodies are coming up out of the grave. Now here's the third thing that's going to happen. We who are alive, it says, will be caught up to meet them in the air. So the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will... How long? Right away. Right away. The Bible says in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen quick according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Bible says we're going to catch up to them in the air. So they won't be too far ahead of us. And here's the hope. Here's the hope that Paul is writing to people. Don't don't forget the context. He's writing to people who loved somebody that was looking for the coming of the Lord. But they died before Jesus could come. And so Paul writes and he says, one of these days Jesus is going to come. And when he does, you're going to be glorified in that moment. The body that you're walking around in, the body that you're serving in, the body with aches and pains, that body's going to be glorified as your feet leave the ground. And when you get up into the air, guess what? There's going to be a reunion in the clouds. Because those that have already died, their glorified body came up before yours. They're going to be in the clouds too. And Paul says, we will meet them in the air. And then here's the fourth thing that's going to happen. It says, verse 17, the last part. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Can I tell you, because maybe you, maybe you heard it wrong. The message of the coming of the Lord is not a doomsday message. Paul wrote this to give great hope to people whose heart was aching for those that have died. Paul wrote this message to give great hope to people who knew that heaven is not a place on earth. That they were facing persecution, they were facing difficult situations. And Paul said, you can be hopeful because Jesus is coming again. And when he comes and calls you with a great heavenly shout, before you get to the skies, those that have already died are going to be there before you. They're waiting. They're waiting. And you will be with them in the air. And that is why he ends chapter 4 with these words. And we should never leave these words out when we're talking about the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 18. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. 
Now, when you get into chapter 5, he jumps jumps ahead. When you get into chapter 5, he's talking about the the second coming of the Lord, when Christ is going to set up his kingdom. The first time in chapter 4, we hear the shout, but there's no mention of the lost world hearing the shout. In fact, there's no mention of Jesus' feet even touching the ground. The Bible says that we're going to meet Him in the clouds. That's the rapture of the church. The Bible also communicates that there's a second coming of the Lord when Jesus will come down the same way He went up off the Mount of Olives and He will touch His feet down on that mountain and it will be split from north to south and the church of God is coming with Him and He's going to establish a kingdom in the earth. So here's the thing. The Thessalonian church knew about that because the Old Testament talks about it so much. It's called the day of the Lord. It's talking about that day and it's always written as a a day of judgment, a day of hardship. When the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be a day of of judgment on the earth for, for sin and unrighteousness. And they knew about that. And the reason we know that they knew about it is because verse one of chapter five. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he said, about the rapture of the church, you're uninformed. And I don't want you to be uninformed, so let me explain it to you. But you know all about the coming of the Lord. And when he comes, he's coming like a thief in the night. And so Paul does a a deep dive into eschatology right here. And and eschatology is just the study of things to come. He kind of just goes into, hey, here's what you need to look forward to. Here's what you need to have hope in. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, you're going to be made new. You're going to be glorified. And all those that have died before you, you'll meet them in the sky. But while we're on the topic, let me just say, there's more. How many of you know there's more? And so, so Paul just says, I don't, I don't need to tell you about all this. You know well about the day of the coming of the Lord. And he doesn't want to go into all of the details in that. But let me just point something out to you as we look at verse 3 here. You can notice that Paul's pronouns change. He goes from talking about we and us to talking about they and them. And there's a reason for it. Because when ta- Paul talks about the second coming of the Lord... He has no anticipation that there's going to be any Christians on the earth at that time. When Paul talks about the Lord coming the second time with the armies of heaven to bring destruction and judgment on Satan, he has no assumption that there's going to be Christians living in the earth. And so he says this in verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety. That's what they'll be saying in the earth at that time. Peace and safety. He says destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape can I tell you what drives the church is not the coming judgment what motivates a contagious church is the eminence that Christ is coming For us. Not to bring judgment. But to bring hope. To life. 
What drives the church is that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. You can spend a lot of time speculating about the end times. You, you can read scriptures and, and you can read headlines and you can try to figure things out based on what's happening in the news today. Where does that put us on the timeline? In fact, the disciples asked Jesus two different times, tell us more about the, the coming of your kingdom. Tell us more about the end. Have you ever noticed it seems like every year there's a new end of the world movie that comes out? Like people are fascinated with knowing about the future. That's why astrologists and palm readers are still in business. People want to know. Two different times, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Tell us, what's it going to be like at the end? And one time, Jesus responded. He gave them Matthew 23, 24, and 25. I'd encourage you to read it this week if you're curious. He explained to them, this is what it's going to be like. Read those incredible chapters. But the next time, they said, we want to know more. Tell us more. Is this the time that you're going to set up your kingdom? Is this the time? They were referring to the second coming of the Lord. And that conversation happened in Acts chapter 1, where we were earlier. You know what Jesus told him? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But after the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. What was Jesus saying in that moment? Look, don't spend all of your time trying to set dates and anticipate the moment of my coming. Live this life to the fullest full of my spirit, so that you can be my witness in the world. So the motivation of a contagious church is the reality that we don't know how many days we have to witness. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. He didn't give us all the details, and He did it on purpose because His eminence inserts accountability into our lives. Today could be the day. I can't live like tomorrow's the day. Today could be the day. He's coming. And the church was motivated by it. Oh, I got so much I need to skip through here. Paul's purpose. Was to encourage the church. Let me tell you, let me tell you about something that happened this week. Of course, my mind was on this. And my youngest daughter, Mally, she's nine. Uh, she, she came in... Uh, sat down next to me and was just snuggled up next to me. and So we're just talking and, and uh, I just said, Mally, did you know that Jesus is coming again? She goes, yeah. <laughs> like, unimpressive question, Dad. I just want to make sure. So I was like, okay, tell me about it. How's he coming? And I just started kind of grilling her a little bit, you know. How's he coming? What's it going to be like? And she got some of the facts a little a little twisted, but she was uh she surprised me. I said, "Mally, how'd you know that?" She said, "You told me." Said, oh. Okay. So we talked about the Lord coming and the rapture of the church, and then I thought, "Wow. I don't remember having this conversation. I know I've told my kids that Jesus is coming, but I don't remember the conversation. So I said, well, what happens after that? And she said, well, we're in heaven for a while. I mean, not like a day or so, for a while. And then we come back, and, um, and then there's a big battle, and, and, and the devil is thrown into a pit. And now my eyebrows are up. 
And now I'm trying to remember the conversation. Like, she's unrolling, you know, uh, a, a nice eschatological timeline here. And I'm going, okay. Because, yeah, and then, you know, the devil's going to be thrown in the pit and then Jesus is going to reign. I said, how'd you know that? And she said, well, we were asking questions about it in Sunday school a while back. So Miss Pam taught a lesson on it. <laughs> and so, Pam Frank, good job. She's upstairs today, yeah. Yeah. I said, wow, that's, that's awesome. And so I said, let me read it to you. So I opened up my Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I read to her what I read to you today. That the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air. And so as we stood there and we, we talked about that, I said, can you imagine what it's going to be like that day when all the graves of Christians are just opened up? And I'm totally into the conversation now, you know. I said, all the graves are opened up? She goes, yeah. And I said, man, people are going to like walk through a cemetery and then just see like all these graves opening up. And then her expression changed. And I could tell, like, she had a question. But it was one of those questions, like, I'm embarrassed to ask this question because I, I know I should know the answer. But she was processing something. And I, I had to know. I said, what? What are you thinking right now? She goes, well, I, well no, I just, well, n- never mind, I know. And I said, no, 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 what? What was it? What were you thinking? And what she was thinking in that moment was, who, who are going to be the people walking through the cemetery that see the... Empty graves. And she said, I, I, I know, but I was just thinking for a minute that like everybody goes to heaven. And in her innocence, she communicated something that we would all love to believe. We don't want to be inundated with this reality that there's a world around us that's dying. And, and then she just said, it would be sad. It would be sad for my friends to, to not go to heaven. I said, yeah. Yeah, Mally, it would. It would be really sad. That's why, that's why we have to tell them about Jesus. I said, Mally, that's, that's why we, we can't waste the opportunities that God gives us to tell people that Jesus loves them. That He's for them because we, we don't want them to be left. And here, here's what this text ought to cause us to do. Two things. And we'll pray. It, it ought to cause us to lean in and to pull something close to us. But it also ought to cause us to push back. And, and the leaning in part is this. And this is why I'm going to declare this blessed hope this week at Steve's funeral. Because when we deal with death, when we deal with our own mortality and the loss and the separation, we have a blessed hope that we can lean into that says, listen, death is not the end. Grab a hold of that today. Lean into it. Death is not the end. Those who have died and preceded us in death, they will rise first and we will be together with them in the air and so shall we be with the Lord forever. Grab a hold of that promise and lean in, Thessalonians. Paul said, lean into it. Don't be discouraged. Have hope. But this message also should cause us to push back. To push back from the false security of what we would all love to believe. 
that everybody that dies goes to a better place. Push back from the false assurance that life is long and we have plenty of time. When you hear a message like this, it ought to cause us to to push back from complacency. It causes us to sacrifice. It causes us to make more room for more people. It causes us to be intentional about our conversation. And to say, man, I I don't want anybody that I know, that I love, to be left wondering what happened to me. See, for my sake, For my sake, I hope that you never visit a grave with my name on it. I'm not looking for the undertaker to take me out. I'm looking for the upper taker. I want to go in that second shift. Not those that died, but those that were alive. For my sake, I hope you never visit a grave with my name on it. But for your sake. I hope you never visit an open grave with my name on it. And when we read this text, and we read Paul's encouragement, it gives us hope that we can hold on to. It also causes us, the same way my daughter looked into my eyes, I I could tell she was thinking hard. She got sober-minded real quick. She said, wow, that would be really sad. It would be really sad. Let me give you a closing verse. Paul says to this church, verse five, or chapter 5. He said, you're... Verse 5. You are all children of light and children of the day. He said, when the thief of the night comes, he's going to come and it's going to be a shock. The world's not expecting him. Because they're lost in darkness, but... You won't be surprised because you're of the day. So, verse 6, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Awake and sober. That's what the church ought to be. He was saying, when you look at the world, they're lost in darkness. The coming of the Lord will be like a thief in the night because either they're, they're unaware because they're asleep or they don't care because they're drunk on the cares of this world. They're not thinking about eternity. He said, but you are sober and alert. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since you belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This is the second time that Paul mentions his favorite trilogy Of godly attributes. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. But both times in Thessalonians, he changes the order. He says faith, love, and hope. Because he really wanted them to get, what I really want you to get, is hope. And he let that be the climax of what he was saying. Put on faith today. What does faith say? We believe that Jesus died and that he rose We believe that. That's faith. But don't just put on faith. Say, I'm I'm good. Put on love. Put on love and recognize that there's a lot of people that don't know that. And the imminence of Christ's return compels us 
that we should tell them. But he says, put on, put on hope too. And the hope is this. The hope is that those that have died and gone before us will be with them together in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's why he ends this with verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Would you stand with me all over this room? I want to pray for you at the close of this service. And my prayer is this. That you would, in your heart, that you would pull something close to you. That you would pull close to you today the hope of the church. Pull it close to you. If your heart is full of sorrow, if you're anxious about the future, if you're frustrated with your circumstances, if you were hoping heaven would be a place on earth, it's been anything but that, then pull close to you the promise today. Heaven is a certainty for every child of God. That heaven is a reunion with those that have gone before. But my second prayer is that we would push back today. That God would shake us from complacency. Father, today, Lord, for those that are hurting, for those that are confused, for those that are downtrodden, God, I pray today that they would be encouraged the same way that you encouraged the church through Paul's words. God, I pray that you would encourage the church today. And if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in you to save them, I pray right now in this moment that they would stretch their faith towards you. Listen, congregation, I, I can't pray a prayer of salvation for you. But I want to invite you to pray a prayer right now. Just ask God, if, if you're far from God, if you don't know God, if you don't know what would happen to you if today was your last day. Whether by way of, of the rapture or by way of the grave. If you died and you don't know where you're going right now, just pray a prayer of repentance. Say, God, forgive me. I, I need you to save me. I do believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I do believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sins and I believe God that He's coming again and make me ready. Make me ready for His return. If you'll pray that prayer with your heart, God will hear you today. God, I pray today that we would cling to Your promises and that we would put on faith. That we would put on love. God, for some of us, practically speaking, that's going to require sacrifice to be other-centered. But God, we put on love for the sake of the gospel. Because everything we do as a contagious church is driven by the imminence of your return. So we cannot wait. We cannot settle. We cannot be satisfied. There's still a world of lost and dying people around us. God, we put on love today. we put on hope God I thank you today for the encouragement of the saints thank you God that even in this hour that we've had here in your word God you've you've lifted our spirits you you pulled 
You pulled our eyes up from the here and now, from the stuff that consumes us. And, and for a few moments, God, we fixed our gaze on majesty. For a few moments today, God, we, we longed for heaven. God, forgive us that we don't do it often enough. May we do what Hebrews tells us. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, we thank you. Thank you for your presence today. Thank you for your encouragement. As we leave this place, use us. Use us to speak life to those who don't know you. In the name of Jesus.